0: Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. And uh, as I previously mentioned on the show, one of the ways that we like to do that is by talking about Calvinistic Baptists throughout the history of uh, the Church, and we have the privilege to do that today by talking about one Calvinistic Baptist that perhaps you are not that familiar with, and we hope that... Maybe you will become more familiar with this man uh, by the time this conversation is over, and that is John Collett Ryland. And to have that conversation, we have the privilege of talking with uh, Garrett Walden in this episode. So welcome to the podcast, Garrett.
1: Man, I'm grateful to be here, Austin.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming on uh, and welcome back, actually. We previously had you on a few months ago uh, with a number of brothers from the London Lyceum uh, to discuss the John Gill project that you guys are working on. Uh, but for our listeners that didn't catch that episode and for our listeners that may not know you, can you just take, uh, a moment to, uh, introduce yourself or reintroduce yourself to our audience?
1: Yeah, certainly. Certainly. So my name is Garrett Walden. I'm, uh, married to my wife, Kat. Um, uh, wow. Coming up on, uh, nine years. And so it's, uh, it's been a wonderful time. We have, uh, four children, uh, Henry, is seven Eleanor is five Phoebe is three and Louise is about a year and a half so they keep us pretty busy and uh, I'm grateful grateful for them I'm one of the pastors at Grace Heritage Church here in Auburn Alabama and so I've been at the church about six years or so and uh, I've been a pastor for about three and a half years uh, at the church. And so grateful to be part of the ministry there and uh, just a, a sweet fellowship and congregation. Um, you mentioned just in the intro about uh, from coming from a confessional Baptist perspective, our church affirms the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so it's great to be in like-minded company. Um, so that's just a little bit about that. So um, I also am one of the editors for the London Lyceum, which is kind of an online center for uh, analytic Baptist and confessional theology. And so I just kind of do a lot of editing of mostly written material there, and I really enjoy that. It's so just a wonderful fellowship of like-minded uh, men and women, and so it's it's just been a, a wonderful time.
0: Hmm. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think you recently graduated uh, from Southern with a THM, so uh, although you didn't mention that, I just wanted to Mention uh, my congratulations to you, brother. And uh, I'm not exactly sure. I, I think I'm right in guessing that part of your THM uh, degree was research on the person that we're going to be speaking about in this conversation. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So,
1: you know, to make a long story short, I entered the PhD program at Southern Seminary uh, to study with Dr. Michael Haken in, in early Baptist uh, history and theology. And so just here recently, I decided to um, stop that PhD pursuit uh, for just a number of, of different reasons, and I took the THM. I was pretty much right at the point where I had earned enough credits to, uh, to receive the THM, and uh, I pulled together some some essays and, and had a thesis uh, that was related to, to John Collett Ryland. And so... Uh, Lord willing, that that thesis might see publication uh, one day soon. And so I've got a handful of essays uh, related to some research with Ryland. And so really for the past uh, several years, I've committed myself to to Baptist history and theology and, and John Ryland in particular.
0: Yeah, great. And so our next question is, why? <laughs> why would you <laughs> spend all of this time studying uh, someone as obscure, at least to uh, popular level church history, people who are interested in church history? Why would you spend so much time in uh, someone like John Call at Ryland? What led you to start studying about him?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question and one that I get asked someone often. And so um, the, the short answer is I had a phone conversation with uh, with Dr. Haken, and I just asked him, you know, what are some, some things that need someone just to take up and, and, and take some ownership of and study and research and write about? What what are the gaps in the in the literature? And he said, you know, one, one way I could approach that pursuit is to take one figure uh, from, from Baptist history, someone who's relatively little known, and just kind of take him as my guy and just pursue everything I can to learn more about him and uh, maybe find some ways to publish about him. And uh, so he just listed off about a dozen names just off the top of his head in this phone call. And I wasn't prepared for that. And so uh, I'm like, trying to like find ways to remember some of the, the things that he said. And by the time the phone call was over, after we had talked for a little while, the only name that I could remember was John Collett Ryland. <laughs> and so I just Googled his name. Uh, I don't even know if I spelled it correctly, but I Googled his name and just started digging around what I could find on the Internet. And uh, I stumbled across one uh, document that was written by john collett ryland and i just started reading it and it was just incredible i was like wow i can't believe that there's no significant work done on this person i mean this is just amazing uh, material that i found and i just i found a pdf scan of um a a work that i'll come back to later but it's this uh, 1782 uh, book that he wrote on uh, the divinity of christ and it's a 450 page book that had been scanned in by, like, I don't know, the British Library or something like that. And it's free online on Google Books. And so I just downloaded the PDF and printed it off and just started reading it. And it's just amazing orthodox classical Christology. Um, And he is citing people that I love. And uh, so he's, you know, using a lot of stuff from John Owen and uh, from John Gill and from some other uh kind of great reformers and puritans and so he's just a uh, just an amazing uh, figure and so like that work is you know a 450 page book on classical christology from a particular baptist i was like wow this is just a a, a treasure trove so you know i'm reading along in that book just (laughs) i just stumbled across it and he's referencing other works that he had published so I start just trying to figure out how I can find them, and uh, next thing you know, long story short, I, I created an exhaustive bibliography of the works of John Ryland. Basically, that way of like looking through his notes and looking at other databases, and I've compiled a bibliography of a little over 120 unique titles that were written by John Culler Ryland. And so there's it really is like a Uh, like a a honey hole of Baptist literature uh, by this man. So that's kind of how I kind of got into it. It's just really tracking down all the stuff that he wrote and reading it along the way.
0: Yeah, that's uh, incredible that you've been able to uh, compile a bibliography of his uh, sources. And I'm sure that has been really enjoyable for you as you've uh, done your part uh, in trying to recover some Baptist history. And uh, in your study of John Collett Ryland, um, what have you learned about his life? Would you be willing to uh, share with us a biographical sketch of this person? I'm assuming that even those of our listeners that are interested in church history or even particular Baptist history might know little about this uh, man of God. So can you tell us about him?
1: Yeah, certainly. So the reason I keep saying, and also keep saying John call it Ryland is because he has a son by the same name, John Ryland Jr. And, it's important to distinguish the two. They often get mixed up uh, in the history. Uh, so John Ryland Jr. was the close friend of Andrew Fuller and William Carey and John Sutcliffe and Samuel Pierce and all of those men that formed the Baptist Missionary Society in 1792. Of course, John Ryland Jr. goes on to become the president of the Bristol Baptist Academy. Uh, and so John Ryland Jr. is a, is a massive figure in his own right in Baptist history, but his father, John Collett Ryland is slightly lesser known um, because of And there's some reasons for that I'll get into, but the the long story short of John Collett Ryland is that he was born in 1723 um, and he died in 1792. So he's a true 18th century man. Uh, you know, he's kind of born in the middle of, you know, not in a, in, a, in a major city or anything like that. He's um, kind of lives a rambunctious lifestyle as a, as a child and a young man. He eventually makes his way to Burton-on-the-Water, kind of a, a lesser-known town or village in the area, and begins attending the church pastored by Benjamin Bedham. And Benjamin Bedham was an amazing hymn writer and, and pastor and, and preacher in the region. And there was a revival that broke out in 1741 and john collett ryland along with about 40 other people were converted in this revival and so early 1740s he's he's he becomes a a christian and pretty much early on benjamin bedham identified just the gifts of teaching and intellect in uh, young ryland and so sent him to bristol academy to to study which was essentially like a seminary um, it was one of the, just the few places where Baptists could receive a theological education uh, in that time, uh, because of some political restrictions. And so he goes to the Bristol Academy in the mid seventeen forties seventeen forty four to seventeen forty six, or so, and studies under Bernard Fosket and Hugh Evans. Um, and so he has a pretty terrible time there. He he did not fare well in seminary. He had such a, a voracious appetite for for literature. He's reading a ton. Um, he is just saturated in the works of John Owen and a few others, uh, but he's you know memorizing the Baptist Catechism. He's studying the Second London Confession and the works of John Gill. Um, but he goes through kind of a spiritual depression where he begins to second guess a lot of things that he was raised to believe. So he, questions the existence of God. He questions the divinity of Christ, the reliability of the scriptures. He questions the uh, the reality of his own soul and if there's an afterlife. And so he, he just is really wrestling with a lot of different questions, possibly stimulated by kind of the enlightenment rationalism that's popular at this time. And so uh, eventually he kind of breaks through some of that hesitancy and suspicion and and doubt and finds assurance and is called out to preach at this uh, town called Warwick. And so he becomes a a regular preacher there. And after a while they call him to be the pastor there. So he's the pastor at Warwick from 1750 till about 1759. While he's there, he becomes a close friend of James Harvey, uh, a a person who's uh, another kind of one of the great revival preachers, and writers, and theologians. Uh, he's a friend of Philip Doddridge and um, a few others, and shortly after that, kind of his most famous kind of stretch of ministry is in Northampton. He becomes the pastor of the Baptist Church in Northampton. He's there from 1759 to 1785, and that kind of becomes the center of Baptist activity in the in the English Midlands, and it's there that they form the... Um, the Northamptonshire Baptist Association, and it's that association that eventually develops the Baptist Missionary Society. And um, so while he's at Northampton, he, you know, has great connections with John Newton and William Cooper over in Olney. Uh, He's, uh, again, just a a close friend of John Brine and John Gill and uh, has Lots of just really interesting things that happen uh, while he's there at Northampton. It's a it's a really successful ministry. It's one of the larger Baptist churches in the area and even in the country. It eventually grows to a little over two hundred people during Ryland's ministry, which is very large for a Baptist church in that time. And um, let's see. I think while he was there, it says that the 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 building had to be enlarged twice to accommodate the hearers that that came to the church. And so. I don't know that we would call it a revival that happens at at Northampton, but a significantly successful ministry. And it's probably largely due to John Ryland's preaching. There are some people who have written about him in their memoirs who have said he's one of the most gifted uh, preachers in the country and one of the most gifted preachers in Baptist history. Uh, There are people that say some kind of exaggerated things like that. They've likened him to Demosthenes and like a Baptist George Whitefield and that sort of thing. And um, there are really only, I think, two of his sermons that survive, at least that I know about. I'd love to find some more. But I think I only know about two of his sermons that survive. And when you read them, I believe it 100%. Uh, just the way that he was able to to write and communicate is really just extraordinary. But, you know, he, he was an extemporaneous preacher. He would study all week and then just kind of preach uh, just as the Spirit led in the moment. And so... Um, not a lot of his sermons were, were written down so um, just on that note he was a good friend of George Whitfield there's a, a letter that we have between that Whitfield wrote back to Ryland I wish we had more of Ryland's letters out to other people but um, so we know he's a friend of Whitfield um, uh, a, a critic of uh, John Wesley and uh, there's Just lots of other interesting things about him, but just to kind of kind of wind it down. Um, In 1785, he uh, leaves his pastorate at Northampton. Uh, He leaves it in the charge of his son. His son, John Ryland Jr., becomes a co-pastor with him there in 1781. So they're pastors together until uh, for about four years till 1785. And then Ryland kind of retires uh, to a a town called Enfield, um, which is kind of near London, and he's he's there for the rest of his life till seventeen ninety two. Um, I say kind of retires because there was a a question about why exactly he left Northampton. And it's pretty much understood at this point that there were some financial indiscretions in Ryland's life, largely to do with printing too many books. <laughs> yeah, we, we might have similar problems of buying too many books and get us, in, get ourselves in trouble. Uh, but he basically bought books and published books and produced books uh, and put himself in financial hardship, which is kind of a scandalous thing for a minister to do to find himself in financial hardship for any reason, really. Uh, but others have said, you know, he he was also just too generous when people asked for money. Um, like he pretty much never said no. And uh, people knew that about him and knew that he was kind of gullible to a kind of a sad story and kind of took advantage of him. So he eventually kind of finds himself in financial trouble. And John Ryland Jr. has a a long series of letters with John Newton uh, about that. And so John Ryland Jr. and some friends essentially bail John Ryland Sr. out of his financial trouble. But it was enough that he needed to remove himself from ministry for a time to get his... uh, finances in order so uh, just maybe one last thing just to give you a picture about him um, he was a a schoolmaster that was kind of his main thing other than preaching he was a bivocational pastor so when he was at Warwick and when he was at Northampton and after he moved to Enfield, he managed really successful boarding schools that people would send their children from all over so it was a boys school that they would come and live uh, at the school and uh, he was just a really successful teacher and and uh, tutor of, of students. So that's uh, that's kind of a, a big picture sketch of his life. You're welcome to, to ask any other kind of questions, but I'm sure I'll fill in some more, some more gaps as we go.
0: Yeah, thank you for that uh, biographical sketch. That was really helpful, especially uh, the part at the end, I didn't know about him uh, bringing himself to uh, some financial trouble. Um, maybe there'll be some application that we can make at the end uh, related to, some of the things that you talked about in his life, but thank you for that sketch. It was really helpful. Um, The only thing that I ever knew of this man, John call it Ryland is that he's the one that is often portrayed uh, as engaging with uh, William Carey, um, the well-known story that involves William Carey. And he's presented as a hyper Calvinist for uh, supposedly rebuking William Carey uh, for, being eager to evangelize the nations. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of feedback to give in relation to this. So um, from your study of John Collett Ryland, can you uh, recount this story either as it is often told or as it should be told in your estimation, and then tell our audience uh, your thoughts about um, John Collett Ryland's theological convictions on uh, hyper-Calvinism or the free offer of the gospel or ever wherever, wherever you want to take that. Yeah,
1: that's great. Yeah. So I, I didn't mention in the biographical sketch because I knew we would get to this question. So J- John Collett Ryland, if anyone ever knows his name, it's really only for this, uh, which, of course, I think is a shame because there's there's just so much more to him than that. But uh, the story with him and William Carey, um, it. The, kind of the the main part that everybody wants to talk about is this ministers meeting that happens in on September thirtieth, seventeen eighty five. Uh, but the story of Ryland and Carey actually go, goes prior to that. Uh, William Carey, when he's converted uh, years prior, uh, he goes to John Ryland, senior, and asks to be baptized. And so William Carey was was a close friend of John Ryland Jr. and um, so, yeah, he, he goes to John Ryland Sr. and asks to be baptized. And Ryland Sr. says, wonderful, this is amazing. And uh, John Ryland Jr. actually is the one that baptizes them right at the foot of the the, the church property there in Northampton. Uh, and so it's, you know, they, they have a connection. This isn't just like some random guy that shows up with a crazy idea. Um, so the, the way the story goes is the Northamptonshire Baptist Association, they meet. Uh, usually in the um, in May, late May, early June, every year for the association meeting. But then they have other ministers' meetings outside of that time, uh, where the just the pastors would get together just for mutual encouragement. And so it's at one of these meetings, uh, September thirtieth, seventeen eighty-five. Uh, John Collett Ryland is kind of the 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 leading pastor of the group, I guess. Mainly probably because he's one of the oldest, and so he's. He, he looks at these two younger men uh, there and asks them to propose a, a topic for discussion uh, for for the for the ministers to talk about. One of the guys um, was a guy named John Webster Morris who plays into the story. Uh, he says he says, hey, why don't we talk about um, basically did uh, did Christ die for all people without exception? Well he's kind of wanting to get into like the extent of the atonement and uh, some other details of, of the doctrines of grace and John Ryland senior doesn't want to talk about that. So he says, just go home and read John Gill and John Bryan. Let's don't waste our time on that. They've already settled the question. And so then William Carey's the other guy and William Carey says, well, Hey, what about that, that passage at the end of Matthew um, where, you know, Jesus tells the disciples to make disciples of all the nations. Uh, Does that apply just to the apostles or does that, imperative extend to the church through all the ages. And th- the way the story goes is that John Ryland gets you know really flustered and frustrated by that question. And he says, sit down, young man. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. And um, and of course, William Carey's embarrassed in front of all of his peers. And um, so the way the story often gets told is John Ryland is this kind of gruff, cranky, hyper-Calvinist, and uh, just has no compassion or heart for the nations, uh, because hyper-Calvinism, you know, there's no point in doing all that, Um, and so that's kind of the story, and it's really unfortunate that that's really what Ryland is known for, because I think there's, it's more complex than that, so... I, I really do believe that one of the reasons that John Ryland is not more known than he is is because people hear that one story, and they think to themselves, "Wow, what a terrible, grouchy person." There's no way I don't want to know anything more about that man. He's that's that's a pretty awful thing. So, uh, so one of the big questions when I started getting into Ryland is I was already, um, I was already you know through reading that big book on the divinity of Christ, and so I was like, wait a minute. This is the same guy? There's just no way. This is the same guy. And so I start looking into the history of that little encounter, and it's really quite interesting. There's there's several different uh, narratives of what exactly happened, and none of them agree with one another. So John Webster Morris, the other guy that was there, he has his own account of that narrative in the little biography that he did on Andrew Fuller there's a footnote in this biography of Fuller that John Webster Morris tells this event. And he adds a bunch of stuff in there where he's, you know, he brings up, you know, do you know all these foreign languages? And, um, and then John Webster Morris also inserts some things about eschatology, uh, that there's gotta be a second Pentecost and essentially a second outpouring of the, the miraculous spiritual gifts. Um, and the, you know, some interpreters, uh, have a very legitimate case to make that because of Ryland's particular kind of premillennial eschatology, that the evangelism of the nations would have been premature during their time. They were waiting for other eschatological events to unfold before it would be the signal for the church to evangelize the nations. So there, there are people that would make a, a case that the reason Ryland said what he said to William Carey is for eschatology. Um, Others, he was just cranky. Others, he was a hyper-Calvinist. And so what's interesting is John Webster Morris's biography of Fuller is not the most flattering portrayal of Fuller. And John Ryland Jr. was a sp- is particularly asked by Fuller to do his like authorized biography. So when John Ryland Jr., then like the next year, publishes, or really it was the same year, uh, but later that year, publishes his biography of Fuller, he critiques, in his own footnote, John Webster Morris's account of that event, of his father. And so John Ryland Jr. says, basically, in summary, paraphrase here, I can't believe John Webster Morris said that about my father at that meeting. There's just no way that that ever happened. Uh, my father wasn't even at that meeting. Uh, there's no way that his eschatology would ever lead him to that conclusion. And I don't think he even said that to William Carey. And so... <laughs> Now we're just as a historian, you're like, well, wait a minute. Well, what even happened? Um, John Ryland Jr. said, I think John Webster Morris is just misremembering all this. Well, years later, like a decade later, John Webster Morris puts out another edition of his biography of Fuller, and he responds to John Ryland Jr. and says, You know, I'm right. I'm not misremembering. Actually, you're misremembering. And so there's kind of this weird little back and forth where they disagree about what happens. But John Webster Morris does concede one point. He says, um, if Ryland said this to Carrie, perhaps he was being, he, his word was ironical. And in other words, what he's saying is maybe Ryland Sr. was joking or was being facetious in some way. And he wasn't being sincere, but just kind of, I don't know, being, being funny. And it just didn't land. It was a joke that didn't land. And uh, I, that's kind of my take on this thing. I think John Ryland uh, senior did say something harsh and rebuking to William Carey. I think, I think there's just no way around that Um, because of some other corroborating evidence. For instance, William Carey, mentions it to his nephew, Eustace Carey. Um, But so I think there was something said, but I don't think it was intended as an evidence of hyper-Calvinism because I don't think Ryland was a hyper-Calvinist. I'll come back to that. Um, And I don't think it is really having to do with eschatology because John Ryland Jr. explicitly says it was not about eschatology. And they were co-pastors of the church at the time. And I think John Ryland Jr. would know. Um, so I think it's probably some, like, just him trying to be funny, and it just didn't go. And I think that fits with other things that we know about John Ryland Sr. is if you look at anything that anyone ever says about John Ryland Sr., anyone who knew him, there's one common word that they all use to describe him, and it's the word eccentric. He was a bizarre man. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know what all... They they might have meant by that, but there are some really interesting narratives and stories about Ryland Senior. There's one that I just love to tell all the time, which is um, when he first meets a guy named William J. William J. is this you know great preacher in the area. He's a young man. He goes to Surrey Chapel in London. At this point, John Ryland Senior is an old man in, in Enfield, and uh, Ryland Senior just bursts into the door. Uh, he he recognizes William J. from somewhere and. He grabs him by the back of the neck and he says, young man, if you let the people of Surrey Chapel make you proud, I will smite you to the ground. And (laughs) so he kind of has this this temper and this this kind of really exaggerated and hyperbolic personality. Uh, There's another great story of him preaching at this church and the congregational singing was so bad. He stopped the service. And he says, if you guys don't, improve your congregational singing, I will not be surprised if an angel comes out of heaven and wrings your necks off. Um, and so he kind of said things like that. Um, another instance with William J. there was uh, a person who came in to the room where they were meeting and was telling them about some just horrific uh, things that happened on a, on a slave ship, uh, things that I, I wouldn't want to even Share on a podcast, but just horrific things. And William J says that he watched this kind of like inner just writhing in John Ryland. That uh, he start he got up and started pacing the room and was praying out loud, "God help me, God help me." Uh, basically, I think he knew that he was about to explode in rage at hearing about what was happening in the slave trade, and uh, he was trying to constrain himself and control himself but eventually just burst out and uh, William J. was nice enough not to record it, but just says just in the most awful imprecations that I dare not repeat something like that. And so I think he had kind of an explosive personality He's very, um, very exaggerated um, and eccentric is, is the right word. Just one, one more story on that note. Um, Robert Hall Sr. was a, a peer of John Ryland Sr., and uh, at one point, Robert Hall Sr. put his son, Robert Hall Jr., into John Ryland Sr.'s academy at the school. And uh, at this point, Robert Hall Jr. would have been just a small boy. And uh, his, his father and John Ryland Sr. were close friends, and uh, they, they were talking about the American colonies. And uh, there was kind of this, you know, the, the American Revolution was just starting to unfold. And John Ryland Sr., is speaking with uh, Robert Hall, and young Robert Hall Jr. sitting right there, he says, if I were General Washington, oh, I would, he's like, I would just let him have it. Um, let me find his, his exact words here. Um, well, it's escaping me right now. I'll just summarize the story. He says, if I were General Washington, I would get all of my troops together, and we would all take out our swords, and we would cut our arms and pull our blood into one big basin. We'd dip our swords in there, and we would take a vow that we would not sheathe our swords again until the last British soldier is off of this land. And if any man should turn traitor, I would consider it a pleasure, actually a luxury, to plunge my sword into that man's heart. And, <laughs> and so Robert Hall Jr. was sitting there, just a young boy, and he's, he was just terrified that his father was about to leave him with this man. And Robert Hall Jr. in his little memoir says, I really thought he was going to kill me. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, Robert Robert Hall, I think, was onto something there. Um, the, the, so the long story short is, I think John Ryland um, really was eccentric and said some things that don't really fit with his larger theology and his, his theological commitments. And I think those who were his friends kind of knew that about him and knew how to take him with a grain of salt at times. And I think the, the carry interaction is kind of like that. So just to speak to the hyper-Calvinism question, I guess whether or not you say Ryland was a hyper-Calvinist depends on how you define hyper-Calvinism. I think there are two main tenets of hyper-Calvinism. The first is a denial of the free offer of the gospel. In other words, we do not use the language of offer to say that the gospel is offered to sinners. The reason why a hyper-Calvinist wouldn't want to say that, or why anyone, well, why someone wouldn't want to say that, is because it makes the atonement of Christ sound potential. Um, it, it takes away the definiteness of the atonement. And so a lot of Calvinists at this time, largely, honestly, influenced by John Gill and John Bryan and some others, they would not use the language of offer. The other tenet of hyper-Calvinism is um, a denial of duty faith. Uh, that, uh, it's, a de- it's basically saying that um, people, or the unregenerate, do not have a duty or obligation to have faith in Christ, because they can't if they're reprobate. They literally can't. Uh, their inability means that they have no responsibility uh, for faith. They're, they're condemned on other accounts, but not for, not, for uh, not having faith in Christ. So I would say if the, the, the duty faith question and the free offer question, if those are the two tenets of hyper-Calvinism, um, Ryland is kind of a mixed bag. He does deny the language of offer, but he uses a lot of synonyms for offer. So it makes it kind of complicated. So he's totally fine using language of inviting, and uh, pleading, and persuading, and all a bunch of other terms that are really, really close to the language of offer. But he does say that he would not use the word offer. So I think that's more of a semantic thing than it is a theological like commitment. And um, and on the nature of faith, um, I don't, I don't, I haven't read anywhere where he denies. The duty of faith. He affirms a bunch of other uh, obligations that even the non-elect have uh, to God in terms of right worship and uh, love and obedience and a bunch of other things. And so, I think it's really hard to make a case that Ryland was a hyper Calvinist on those two counts. Um, the the free the the offer one I think does stand. And so, I would I would say that he is a moderately high Calvinist. Um, so he's not exactly on the same wavelength as someone like Fuller or even his son, John Rowland Jr. or William Carey. He's not exactly on the same wavelength, but he's really, really close, and he's not as far off of that as some others are. There are some other uh, doctrines that kind of attend to hyper-Calvinism. For instance, the doctrine of eternal justification, an outright resistance to evangelism and missions, being critical of the revivals that took place. So like John Ryland was a village preacher. Uh, he was kind of a revivalist in his own right. He was a close friend of George Whitfield. He loved Jonathan Edwards. And um, so I, I, there's a lot of things about Ryland that just do not fit the mold of hyper-Calvinism at all. And so um, I've got some, some things here that I could I could read to you, there's one place where he specifically talks about the high Calvinists neglecting to speak to the unconverted, and he says that that's so wrong. I'll I'll just read it here. He um, He says, avoid two extremes. This is Ryland. He says, some high Calvinists neglect the unconverted, but Paul left no case untouched. He spoke properly and suitably to Felix, as well as to Timothy. Some neglect to preach the law, and tell their hearers to accept Christ. Others, he uh, um, says, so some neglect to preach the law and tell their sinners to accept Christ. He says, Oh sinners, beware. If Christ says depart, it's all over. Depart into a thousand etnas bursting up forever and ever. Your souls are now within an inch of damnation. I am clear of your blood. If you are condemned, I'll look you in the face at judgment and say, Lord, I told that man, I told those boys and girls on the 29th of August, 1790, I warned them and they would not believe. And now they stand shivering at thy bar. And so he kind of preaches with this really strong pleading and exhortation and urging the responsibility of, of faith and repentance upon people. And here he's specifically setting himself in contrast to the high Calvinists. Um, one more thing, I'll just read, just because I love it so much, is this this line from um, his book, "Contemplations on the Beauties of Creation." Um, actually, just looking at my time, I probably better not read it. It's wonderful. He basically is just talking about his uh, just compassion for for souls. John Ryland uh, loved evangelism, and he had so much compassion and pity in his heart uh, for people who did not have. The bible and did not have gospel preaching he wrote about it all the time and um so i i would say there are some things that he says like the no offer thing that i think make him in that camp but there's a bunch of other things that i think make him out of that camp so i call him a moderately high calvinist
0: so it's a lot more complicated than just saying that uh he was the hyper calvinist of this story that uh, rebuked william Carey. Mm-hmm. so your assessment moderately high Calvinist. That's that's right.
1: That's that's how I would categorize John Gill, too, by the way. Um, so that's, that's a conversation for another day.
0: Yeah, this is really helpful. And uh, I know that there has been a lot of interest recently in John Gill. Uh, we recently had Jonathan Swan on, who I believe also is involved in the uh, John Gill project. And uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the London Lyceum, uh, H&E and the Andrew Fuller Center are working on the John Gill project to bring uh, back into publication some of John Gill's works. And uh, you've mentioned a number of times uh, John Brine, who is someone that I am becoming more interested in learning more about as I've talked with you uh, in this time period. So maybe somebody will take him up as well, and we can learn more about these men and their time period and some of their theology. But uh, transitioning us now, who are some of the biggest influences upon John call it Ryland, and how do we know this?
1: Yeah, so certainly John Gill is probably the biggest theological influence. And I say that hesitantly because the more I read Ryland, he he's referencing Gill all the time. He knew Gill personally. So Gill dies in 1771, and Ryland was in ministry from really from the mid forties all the way to 1790. So like their, their times overlapped a lot. Uh, they knew each other. John Ryland preached in Gill's pulpit, um, like as, as a guest preacher. And um, back in this day when books were not always as easy to attain, uh, John Ryland kept uh, a full set of Gill's commentaries uh, in the church uh, in like the main auditorium of the church for his uh, church members to come and use. They could not take them out of the church, but they could come and read them in the in the seats if they wanted to. Um, and so John Gill was just massively influential upon Ryland as upon a bunch of other Baptists and others in the time. But the more I read Ryland, I will say a name that occurs possibly more frequently than Gill is Herman Witsius, and he was a, a continental reform theologian, and uh, he wrote uh, this wonderful two-volume work. Um, well, we have it in two volumes, uh, *The Economy of the Covenants*, recently redone by, um, I guess, Reformation Heritage, and uh, just just a wonderful just compendium of theology. And so, Ryland references Witsius probably as much or more than he references Gill, and so he is kind of true to the reform tradition in his influences one other that i think is just so influential upon ryland is john owen and i mentioned this earlier but i'm I'm working on an essay right now on owen uh on ryland's literary relationship to owen and so just to run down just a few things um here and you asked how do we know this we just look at who, who he cites so he actually like will put footnotes in his in his writing where he'll say like see John Owen's discourse on the Holy Spirit. You know, like give the volume and like the page number and all that, to, all that too. So um, Ryland just kind of saturates his, his writing with references to other books. And so I think Ryland first encountered John Owen in 1744 uh, on the mortification of sin and and indwelling sin and just kind of stays with Owen his entire life really. Um, he writes a uh, kind of a, a, a recommendation uh, in like the latter years of his life for an abridged version of Owen's book on the Holy Spirit. There's a guy named George Birder who basically says, Hey, the Holy Spirit book by Owen is like really long and really complicated. I'm going to do an abridgment. And Rylan writes this long like recommendation letter for it, almost like a, we would call it like a blurb. Uh, and so he does that. Um, but probably his most significant connection with Owen is that in I think it must be in 1790, Ryland translates for the first time ever Owen's dissertation on divine justice from Latin into English and reproduces it. So prior to this, uh, Owen's dissertation on divine justice is not in English at all. And so Ryland does the translation and uh, connects with a couple of other men to, to publish it and uh, really gets that work from Owen into um, the English-speaking world in a, in a major way. Uh, this would have been around 1790. And so um, that's just amazing an amazing accomplishment because in that treatise, that dissertation on divine justice, that's one of Owen's biggest polemics against the Socinians, which were what we would call like Unitarians. And this would have been kind of in the peak of Joseph Priestley's uh, kind of Uh, ministry. And so bringing John Owen into English to address the Socinian controversy was just a huge contribution. And one that I don't think anybody, this is probably the first time anybody's even hearing about John Ryland um, translating that work from Owen. I think I may have texted somebody about it once, but um, so (laughs) you're welcome, everybody. Uh, Go look it up. Now, one one thing I don't know, I don't know if modern English versions of dissertation on divine justice from Owen I don't know if it's still Ryland's translation or if it's been retranslated since Ryland. Um, I need to figure that out, but I think that's just a massive uh, thing there um, with, with Owen. He has lots of uh, just amazing things to say about John Owen. He basically says in every major controversy in the church, God raises up a person to be like the hero so like he says you know god raised up augustine to fight the pelagians he raised up athanasius to fight against the arians he raised up martin luther to fight against uh the the roman catholics and he says and he raised up john owen to fight the socinians and uh and so is he he says stuff like that all the time um and um th- there are other things where we see um uh, rylan's heavy dependence upon owen. So i would say he is a true Owenian, if there ever was one.
0: Hmm. That's really helpful. Um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to uh, roughly move us to the next question. Um, you alluded to some of the writings of John Collett Ryland, and in your estimation, what are some of his most significant writings, having done a bibliography of his works?
1: Yeah, so that, that bibliography is published in the Journal of Andrew Fuller Studies, um, the most recent edition. I think it may be the, the fifth edition, or I don't know if they call them volumes. but um, And I think it's free and open access online, so you could find that if you wanted to. It's the, it's the full bibliography. But um, I, I'll just tell you just a few key titles. Um, the first is 1757. He wrote a book called The Christian Preacher Delineated. It's not very long. He basically just goes down and he goes down and just describes the ideal Christian preacher, what his character's like, what his, what his habits and patterns are like, what what his demeanor is in the pulpit, how is his delivery. And so he's kind of just describing this ideal Christian preacher. And this is 1757. Later, I think in 1772, he's talking about that book. And he says, you know what? I was talking about George Whitfield." And uh, so he basically just like wrote this like just glowing description of his view of Whitfield's preaching, and um, he said it could easily apply to James Hervey as well, but he he does single out George Whitfield, and so that's just a really fascinating read, and uh, will be really encouraging. Anyone who's a preacher should read that book or uh, that little that little treatise. Um, 1772, he publishes probably his most controversial. Controversial little piece. It's called a modest plea uh, for communion for free communion at the Lord's table between true believers of all denominations. This is basically his presentation of the case for open communion. And so, John Ryland was in the minority of that debate uh, that kind of picked up in the 1770s. He was an open communion guy, and most of the other particular Baptists were uh, restricted communion. A few other titles to make note of kind of his um i would say his magnum opus is a three volume set of contemplations and the first two volumes are titled contemplations on the beauties of creation and on all the principal truths and blessings of the glorious gospel with the sins and graces of professing christians that's the title of it there's two big volumes they're each about 400 pages and then the third volume is the one that I found first, Contemplations on the Divinity of Christ, that came out in 1782. Uh, so those three volumes together make up his contemplations. And you're, you're looking at about 1,200 pages or so. And uh, and it's just really, really rich. The first volume is kind of like um, a defense of the Bible's inspiration uh, and natural what, what reason can do and what we need revelation for. The second volume kind of gets into... Um, uh, oh, what all we might say, it gets into uh, the Holy Spirit, it gets into the doctrine of God, it gets into um, some stuff about hermeneutics and, and interpreting the Bible. He's got a full kind of guide to interpreting the book of Revelation, um, and then, which is super interesting and very weird, uh, it's, it's really depended upon john gill and then uh, volume three i mentioned is kind of his defense of the divinity of christ so i would say that that's those are some of his main things there's there are a few others uh that would be important to note but um he 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 publishes a a a preface to a new printing of keach's tropologia he publishes uh, a sermon from jonathan edwards um, for the first time in england Um, he publishes a preface to the works of John Bunyan. I mentioned his, his thing with John Owen. So he published a ton of stuff. Like I said, he got himself in trouble publishing so much, but um, yeah, he was, he was all about it.
0: Well, this has been a delightful conversation. Perhaps some of our listeners will be shocked to learn not only more about John Collett Ryland, who is obscure comparatively, but how much literature uh, he contributed. So find that, uh, bibliography that our brother has created. We can even link in the show notes to that. And, uh, we would encourage you to read some of John Collett Ryland's writings. Uh, brother, do you have any final thoughts or encouragements related to John Collett Ryland or Baptist history or anything else we've been discussing in this conversation?
1: Yeah, there's just maybe just a a couple of last things to say. Um, a lot of his works you can find on like Google Books, but not everything. There are some really uh, specialized databases that have some of these things scanned in. And there's probably tons of stuff that aren't even scanned in that are in a library on a bookshelf somewhere that I'm gonna have to try to find. But um, I would encourage you, yeah, you can you can find a lot of these materials online and, and, uh, and available. You know, you'd mentioned, you know, why study someone like this um, who's so obscure? Um, I do view this as an act of love, uh, love for neighbor. Um, we have neighbors that are near to us, uh, geographically. Uh, but this, these, these are neighbors who are near or far from us, relatively speaking, chronologically. And so here, here's a, a, a an elder brother who has invested his entire life in uh, the glory of God. And I just, as an act of love, want to understand him and know him and, and, um, Bring his work forward in ways that it deserves. Uh, that's that's my kind of role as a the, as a historical theologian historian is to uh, to do this kind of work with integrity and 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 love my neighbor um, in, in a way that I'm understanding him for what he's truly saying. Um, for Baptists, um, all you Baptist listeners out there, um, we have incredible resources within our own tradition, and you just got to find them. And that's one of my purposes as a as a historian, as a theologian, and as a pastor is to uh, help people see that Baptists have good theology, have rich history and, and tradition within our own circle, and you don't have to be a Presbyterian to get good Reformed theology. You don't have to leave uh, the Baptist fold to care about um, rich hermeneutics and to care about even uh, in the, the, the church fathers and the great tradition. So, uh, I would encourage you that this, this material is out there. Um, and that that this is our family history. Uh, there's just a, a, a lot of, you know, just great stuff that's in our own stream that, uh, we really need to learn our own theology and our own history better than we do. And, uh, if we're not doing this work, no one else is going to. And maybe just one last point. I think, um, John Ryland is a, a wonderful lesson in humility uh, because he was a really significant influence in his own day. He published all that all that stuff. He had this successful boarding school. He was a really gifted and successful preacher. Um, his son, well, really all of his family went on to do great things. He was well known in his day. And here we are 300 years later from the year of his birth, and not a single person knows his name. Um it's, it's a, it's a lesson in humility for our time. You might, you might think a lot of yourself, you might think a lot of your impact, but at the end of the day, we are, we are bricklayers in the temple of God. And, uh, he was faithful in his day and faithful in his generation. And and we should seek to be faithful in our generation. And, um, it takes humility to be content with that, to be a bricklayer.
0: Thank you for your thoughts and your, um, Work in John Collett Ryland and your time, taking your time today to discuss him. Uh, I do want to uh, make known to you that I greatly appreciate the work that you're doing uh, specifically in recovering our Baptist history. And I hope that uh, the Lord will also raise up others to do work like you are doing. So I appreciate you. I appreciate the time that you've taken to discuss John Collett Ryland. And uh, thank you for coming on today, brother.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, brother.
0: And uh, to our listeners, We want to wish you grace and peace and hope that this conversation has been encouraging to you. Lord bless you.